Well, this morning, I'm preaching to uh, the men in the congregation. And so uh, it's not that you uh, ladies, you women are not important. You're very important. But uh, it tends to be that women get this a little better than men. And so I typically don't have to teach as much to women about this as men. So I think because men tend to be a little more hard-headed, a little more stubborn. Uh, So uh, women, you're off the hook this morning, but not completely. In fact, uh, women, I would encourage you this morning to pray for the men around you, seating around you this morning as I preach, because they uh, pray that God's Spirit would uh, speak to their hearts uh, this morning. See, because I believe that most of the brokenness in the world can be attributed to men. Men who don't rise up. Last week, uh, Roman uh, preached a fantastic sermon on uh, uh, the importance of courage and of faith, of standing up when there's an injustice, and and talked about uh, the story of David and Goliath that we find in 1 Samuel, right before our scripture uh, this morning. and, And he talked about how a courageous man walks the tension between irrational fear, you know, staying seated or running away, or irresponsible aggression, rushing ahead too quickly, uh, not being uh, prepared. Uh, and and remind, uh, Roman reminded us that as men, we, we have to stand up and we have to persist. If you were here last week, uh, you'll remember that. And hear this. Uh, listen up, men, because this is so important. And, and sometimes I don't think we understand this. Both your fear and your courage can influence the people around you. Your courage can influence those around you to rise up. And your fear can encourage those around you to run away. And we see that with Israel. The whole army of Israel, they cowered in fear because of one man, right? Goliath, the giant who stood up. Yet another man, or a boy rather, David, he didn't cower in fear, but rose up to meet the man. And it caused the whole army of Israel, right, to rise up as well. As men, we need to recognize the influence that we have on others around us. And as fathers, we have to understand the incredible influence we have on our sons and daughters as well. How are we influencing the world? How are we rising up, in a sense? So today we're going to look at another aspect of David's life and the importance of friendship as a follower of Christ. This is the part that so many Christian men uh, truly don't understand the importance or the significance of godly friendships. Uh, The part that we as men have neglected, often to the detriment of our life and the detriment of the world as well. But when I talk about friendship... I'm not talking about acquaintances because men typically have a lot of acquaintances in our work and what we do in family even. Uh, We have a lot of acquaintances, Uh, but I'm talking about friendship, but not just friendship, but godly relationships with men built around the pursuit of God's will and accountability. We need relationships centered on the pursuit of God's will and accountability. This is what David had with Jonathan. And David, 
after David rose up and killed Goliath, we read this story that was just read of how David met Jonathan and became fast friends. So I'm going to read it again. It says this, when David had finished speaking to Saul, you'll remember Saul is the king of Israel. After he had finished speaking to Saul, after he killed Goliath, the soul of Jonathan, Jonathan is Saul's son, was bound to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that he was wearing and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, Jonathan is King Saul's oldest son, and this is important for us to understand, and I want you to understand this. We, we don't know a whole lot about Jonathan, but we do have these great little stories throughout 1 Samuel of Jonathan, and we know that he was a brave warrior of God. And back in chapter 14 of 1 Samuel, uh, we read this story about Jonathan's bravery, where he and his armor bearer go out to the Philistine camp, and attack them, to confront them. Now, the Philistines were Israel's greatest enemy at the time. So we read in 1 Samuel 14, verse 6 and 7, these words. It said, Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will act for us. Hear this. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. His armor bearer said to him, Do all that your mind inclines to. I am with you as your mind is, so is mine. See how his courage encouraged another man to go with him? And, and Jonathan here acts and sounds a lot like David, doesn't he? When David goes to talk to Saul and talks about how he can stand up and that God fights the battle and, and his courage encouraged the rest of him. He is a man who knows that the Lord fights the battle. That for God, it doesn't matter if there's few or many. Uh, that if the Lord is on their side, the victory is sure. And so this young man, Jonathan, and his armor bearer, they go and confront by themselves, the two of them, uh, this little camp of Philistines. And, and, and they say, God, do you want us to go? And God tells them yes. And so he, they go and they, they kill 20 uh, Philistine men. And the whole army of the Philistines panics turns around and starts to run. And so the, Is, uh, the Israelite army, army follows them and attacks them and routs the Philistines. That also sounds a lot like David too, doesn't it? That same story. So I'm curious. This is the thing that uh, roused my curiosity as I was reading this this week. Just four chapters later, when the same army of Israel is facing the Philistines again, why are they so scared? Why doesn't Jonathan go out and fight Goliath like he confronted the Philistines just four chapters earlier? What happened? What was the difference? Because Jonathan and his armor bearer, they killed 20 on their own. Why was he afraid to go and face Goliath? What held him back? What holds us back? We know that Jonathan was with the Israelite army as Goliath is coming forward and taunting them. But I think I know. Because here's what happens. After Jonathan had that great victory, he and his armor bearer, and they, they killed those 20 Philistines, and the Israelite army comes and routs the Philistines, King Saul, his father, makes a terrible oath. 
He sees that Jonathan and his armor bearer, they did all this. And as they're about to go and attack, uh, Saul says, none of you military can eat until you've completely destroyed the army. Now, there's a lot of Philistines. And they knew it was going to take them all day long, at least, if not longer, to completely rout and kill the Philistines. So here Saul makes this terrible oath saying that if anyone eats before all the Philistines are killed, I will kill you. Now, Jonathan didn't hear his father make this oath. And he ate some honey. (laughs) And so everyone's like, oh no, what are we going to do? And so they find out that Jonathan ate some honey and Saul finds out. And and so he's about to kill his own son, the son that just defeated the Philistine army. The people, though, finally, they, they convince Saul, don't do this. This would be a great evil. And because of the people, uh, Jonathan was spared. So I believe that uh, Jonathan's courage was saddled because he knew that his father was a rash man who had made terrible decisions and wouldn't listen to godly advice. Here Jonathan had the courage, but, but here he was held back by his father because he didn't know how his father would react. It's a terrible thing. He didn't know what would happen. And, and Saul was too proud to admit he was wrong, that he had made a bad decision. And here's the thing. He didn't surround himself with people who could tell him when he was being an idiot. But that's what we need, men. We need to surround ourselves with men who we give permission to tell us when we're being idiots. We need that because we make dumb mistakes sometimes. But imagine for a moment, imagine if Saul had done that. Imagine if Saul had actually surrounded himself with uh, some few other men who he trusted that he gave them permission to call him out when he made a mistake. So here Saul is, uh, Jonathan and his armor bearer. They, they're routing the army. He's, uh, Saul's about to send the rest of the army after the Philistines. And, and, and Saul says, okay, and, and y'all can't eat until uh, you completely rout the Philistines. Now go. And, and if he had someone, you know, a good friend beside him who he'd given permission, right, to call him out, he would say, uh, Saul, you know, this is going to take all day, maybe a couple of days. They're going to get hungry. We're going to be fighting. I, I don't think that's a good idea, Saul. Why don't you let them eat? And still win the battle, right? You can make it some other type of idea for them. And, he, and Saul would have said, you know what? I think you're right. That was dumb. My bad. I take it back. Eat. Go destroy the army. Right? Just think how Jonathan would have been empowered by that. To see his father make a mistake, admit it, humble himself. The whole David and Goliath might have happened a little differently. So when Jonathan sees David rise up and stand up to Goliath and win the battle because of his extreme faith in God, Jonathan immediately knows, this is a man I can follow. I can't follow my dad because he's irrational and rash. But this is a man I want to know. This is a man I'm going to knit my soul with. This is a man that I want to be in relationship with. Men, we need a few good men around us who can call us out. We need godly friends. But to do that, we have to humble ourselves.
But check this out. It says this. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that he was wearing and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. This is an amazing sentence right there. Uh, right there, Because you have to understand context here. Jonathan is the heir to the throne. Right? If Saul dies, Jonathan is king. He's the oldest son, the firstborn. And here in this sentence, he is, he is relinquishing his rights as king because he recognizes in David that David is going to be the leader. And so his giving of his robe, his armor, his belt, his sword, all of that in effect is saying, I know that you will be king next and not me. And is, is Jonathan jealous? Not at all. Not like his father who was jealous. No, he made a covenant with, with David. And he loved him as his own. He understood that God had chosen him, even though Jonathan should have gotten the crown. And he humbled himself, and they became fast friends. Because he understood this. Can, can you grasp this? We need godly friendships that are built around the pursuit of God's will and accountability. Jonathan understood that. And David understood it as well. We need men that lift us up, that give us courage, that are willing to lay down their lives for us, that, that keep us humble, that call us out when we need to be called out, that, that rise up when we've been beat down, that follow God with passion and purpose. That's what we need, men. Here's the thing. If you don't have that in your lives, then I would encourage you to make that your prayer. You need it more than you can imagine. The world needs it more than you can imagine. It should be your priority number one for you in the coming days and weeks. You should be praying on your knees for this. In fact, men, that longing that you have right now in your heart, in your soul, that's the Spirit of God confirming in your heart that I am right. You need this. We need one another. We have been sold a bill of goods that we don't need each other, that we, we can do it on our own, that we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. That's not true. In fact, that's a lie. See, if you, if you look at the Bible, if you look at this word, if you look at what God does in here, this is a book of relationships. Even in God the Father, we see relationship. In the Trinity, we have God the Father and Jesus the Son and the Spirit in perfect unity, in relationship. Even in who God is, is built in this idea of relationship. Uh, this humility and accountability and love, mutual affection. Men, we need that. That is the Christian worldview. What, is I, what do I say? Christianity is a team sport. <laughs> and men, we were built to be in relationship with the other men. But not just any men, but godly men. Men seeking after God's will. In fact, you can't truly be who God wants you to be unless you are in a relationship with a few godly men who help you in your pursuit of God and his kingdom. Do you hear that? You can't be who God has created you to be unless you are actually in relationship with other men. Pursuing God and accountability. You can't be all that God has called you to be unless you're in that. See, I've been lucky or blessed or won. 
I learned this when I was in my 20s. When I was at the Texas Tech Wesley Foundation, it began to dawn on me, this is what we were created for, to be in relationship. So men in your 19s, 20s, get this now. It's easier to do it now than when you're my age or older. But that's, that's been the heartbeat of who I am. I was, I was taught this, and now it's not always easy, especially as a pastor. <laughs> People don't want to be in relationship with the pastor, let me tell you that. Do you know that? Because they think, oh, I can't be honest with him. <laughs> but, but I, and, and I move all the time, and so there's been times that it's been harder, but everywhere I go, I seek that out first. That is my number one priority when I move to another city. Number one, I'm going to find another man, at least one, that I can do relationship and life with. Someone who is pursuing after God. And, and everywhere I've been, I've been lucky in that. In seminary, I had Richard and Wes. I haven't seen Richard and Wes in over 25 years now. But if we were to see each other, we could go immediately back to that place. Everywhere I've been, people like uh, Tony and Terry and Earl, uh, Charlie and Roman and Mikey, these are my brothers. As Shakespeare said, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. I love that. That's what I've done everywhere I've sought, is to be in relationship with other men. But what does it mean to have a band of brothers with you? Here's what it means. Here's what it means for me. They help me to have a proper perspective. I.e., they tell me not to be an idiot. They call me out. They help me to stand and be held to a higher standard of godliness. They encourage me to be a better man. We're able to do things together that we couldn't do alone. They protect me. They cry with me. They help me have fun. They live life with me. Men, you have a, an orange tie this morning. It's, last year when we did this, uh, we talked about how the orange meant caution. Dangerous man of God. That we are called to be dangerous men of God. And, and part of being a dangerous man of God is that we have to stand up. That we have to rise up. That we have to have courage. The other part is, and this is a part I want you to truly understand, is that we have to have each other. We can't do it alone. That's why we have orange ties. This is what we need. We need each other. We are all unique, but we are called to be in relationship with other men. We have to be intentional about pursuing godly friendships that encourage us to pursue God's will and accountability. That's our calling. Let's pray.